Hello there, welcome back to WN Movie Talk Podcast, formerly known as We Need to Talk About Movies Podcast. I am Trev, and this is another one of those special episodes where I am going to look a little bit closer at a film, and this time the film is Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. If you are new to WN Movie Talk Podcast, there's plenty of old podcasts where myself, my friend Nathan, or recently my brother Robin, get together and we discuss a different film each week. So there's loads of old episodes for you to find. If you have any suggestions for films that you'd love us to discuss, then you can contact us at wnmovietalk at gmail.com. Or if you are on Facebook, find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash podcast and come on over there and join in the discussions from week to week to get mentioned on the podcast. Yeah, so got that out of the way, housekeeping. Anyway, yeah, so I'm a bit of a movie buff. Uh, I always loved watching films. I love the sort of the making of films and all the nerdy film facts. And the Harry Potter franchise is a series that, as a family, we have watched on numerous occasions. And we've most recently sort of watched through it again. I started listening to the audio books last year, uh, just sort of leading into Christmas. And then over the Christmas period, there was the Harry Potter tw- 20th anniversary documentary that me and my wife watched. And then was like, yeah, I think it's time to re-watch the series. So this episode was going to be just me discussing basically the, the Harry Potter films as a series. But once I started to make notes, um, it became apparent that I have an extensive amount of notes just on the first film. So this is just going to be episode one. So stay tuned for more Harry Potter discussion coming up in future weeks. So make sure you've subscribed to us, to our podcast. And also, yeah, please, if you are listening to this and you do enjoy the podcast and you have been listening in the past, if you can go on your pod, whatever you, however you stream your podcast, if you can go onto that site, be it Amazon or Google or Spotify, if you can rate or review us in any way on any of those things, it helps us to get out to a wider audience. So that would be great. Uh, makes all the hard work putting into recording and editing these uh, uh, makes it all, all worthwhile, you know. Anyway, without further ado, let's talk about Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone or the Sorcerer's Stone if you're an American. So I never really expected to enjoy the Harry Potter films at all. I can't even remember if I was aware of the books, but I remember when the films started to sort of go into production and people were discussing it and when it came out it was like this big thing and everyone was rushing out to see it and I was like I am not bothered about watching some kids film about a specky little wizard you know um it wasn't until me and an ex-girlfriend was house sitting someone or farm sitting she they had stables she was looking after the horses they'd gone away for the weekend one evening we were sat in the house and I'm like, what should we watch? And she's like, oh, they got the Harry Potter on VHS. Let's watch Harry Potter. And I was like, really? Oh, I really didn't want to watch it. But she stuck it on, you know. And um, I couldn't quite believe how much I had enjoyed the film. You know, yeah, it was a kid's book, but there was so much involved in it. I mean, from like the Dursleys and the setup of him living under the cupboard. I just love all that introduction. And then... Once you get into the magical world of 
Hogwarts and uh, Diagon Alley. You know, it was just great. And the production values was great. And the characters was good. I really enjoyed the story and watching it unfold. And it felt like an adventure sort of film from when I was a kid. And you watch these like Spielberg films. In a sense, there was a real sort of peril and adventure, but play, there's a playfulness about it as well. Chris Columbus obviously uh, directed this. Um, but yeah, I was, from then on, I was like, okay, right, so I will watch these as they come out. And then as the time went on, and by the end of the films, I was with my wife now, and we was going with friends every year to the cinema to watch them as they come out, and we, you know the films and the books aren't afraid to go to dark places they they're very serious children's books but they're more playful and more accessible than i think the hobbit i always find hard going as a book and lord of the rings is very hard going this is playful this is why younger children love getting introduced to it and then if they read a book each year they're growing with the children and it gets darker and darker it's just really great I think J.K. Rowling's imagination and how they are set up from the start. There's lots of little things that are mentioned in the first book that are completely relevant by the end of the book. They're so neatly bound from start to finish that although the films age and mature alongside the series protagonists, they begin playfully, like I said, with wonder, and then they steadily darken as the stories unfold. The main thread of the entire series is evident from the very opening scenes or chapters. I can't think of any other series that has such a major tonal shift, but without sort of feeling detached from each other. You know, they still feel this cohesive series. It's it's amazing. But yeah, so things that are set up at the beginning, obviously the mystery involving Harry and how he survived, the parcel tongue he speaks to the snakes, his visit to Diagon Alley and Gringotts and Ollivander's wand shop, it's completely, perfectly bookends the, the series. You know, he first goes there as a child and then he has to go there and retrieve stuff at the end. And Ollivander's wand shop, where Ollivander tells him about the wand being the only relative of uh, Voldemort's wand. And then he gets given the invisibility cloak as well, which sets up for the Deathly Hallows. Loads going on. And just, yeah, really interesting to watch um, and to sort of realise that... Everything is set up. J.K. Rowling, or She Who Shall Not Be Named, had a real thorough vision of where this series was going. And it's an amazing achievement. And the fact that she was appealing to both boys and girls, and children and grown-ups as well. It was a series that just blew open for everyone. And even if you didn't realise it, you could have been roped in. You know, I was roped in at a late stage. I had male friends of mine who had never watched that sort of film. And they was, by the end of it, they was all hooked. Incredible. But yeah, even like the characters, there's no sexism in the film. There's no like boys are better than girls. or They're all, you know, they're in this mixed sex boarding school. And all the characters are as important as each other. So she's done a lot for equal rights. And it does seem a shame that she's embroiled in this big sort of argument at the moment. Which, you know, having watched the 20th anniversary series, you know, is it cynical of me to think that that reunion was put about to try and distance themselves from J.K. Rowling as a film studio to try and get the film's sort of perceived again, watched because people were turning their back against J.K. Rowling. It does seem a bit of a shame that she's in this 
in this argument. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, she has a right to say what she wants. And if she upsets people, then discuss it. Don't send death threats. Don't cancel her. You know, it's we all have freedom of speech. And I think that these days, freedom of speech is a very one sided thing. What side of the argument you fall on is irrelevant. There is arguments and discussions and debates to be had, but it seems that nowadays you can't have a debate. If you say something that goes against this sort of oppressive agenda, then instantly you're shunned and it's, it shouldn't be like that. The internet has a lot to answer for, for blowing things out of context. I mean, I don't know the details of it, but, you know, it's, it is a shame because watching that 20th anniversary thing, that should have been a lot of praise for J.K. Rowling. That should have been the time when people could stick up for her for creating this book, and it wasn't. It was. It seemed a shame as though it was distancing from her. But anyway, that's that. Like I said, though, it seemed a great time to revisit the series of Harry Potter. Um, and our youngest daughter now, she's at an age where she's reading the books. She's seven, and she sits and reads the book with her mum every night. The first book, both of my other sons, one is 10, my oldest son is 17, and they're both listening to the audio books as well. So we've all really got obsessed with Harry Potter again. Um, But my youngest daughter, she probably enjoyed the first two films more than the others. She sort of started to lose interest, whereas all of us get really involved once the films get darker. But uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. So there's a lot of fact, not fact, but these mythical creatures and all this sorcery and what have you is very well researched by J.K. Rowling. She hasn't made a lot of this stuff up. She's looked into stuff because the Philosopher's Stone is actually a real sort of legend. Nicholas Flamel, the philosopher who created the stone in the book, is a real person documented from medieval France, an alleged alchemist who's reported to have created the Philosopher's Stone, which many believe to have been a mythical substance necessary for turning various metals into gold. Some claim that it contained the elixir of life, and Flamel actually in the Philosopher's Stone has been mentioned in numerous movies and literature, including Indiana Jones and The Da Vinci Code. So in 1997, J.K. Rowling released the first book, which became the third best-selling book of all time behind Tolkien's The Hobbit and Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. They've gone on to become a global phenomenon, spawning a West End stage play, uh, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Harry Potter World, which, you know, the studios have kept all the sets and they must be raking it in each year. We've been once, we are going to go again. Now the children are really interested in it again and we have booked tickets to go and watch Harry Potter and The Cursed Child as well, which we haven't done a West End stage play. Uh, We are watching it from the car park, so (laughs) we didn't go for the expensive seats, but even so, would be quite good to go and see it. And, of course, there's the Fantastic Beasts movie franchise, which I've watched the first one and a half, but much like Peter Jackson's Hobbit series following The Lord of the Rings, this hasn't got the same appeal to me. There's something lacking and something too try-hardy with it, which is a shame, but there's something about the Harry Potter series that just draws you in, a real good adventure. So the books also became successful in the U.S., but obviously the name had been changed to The Sorcerer's Stone. I think the publishers thought that American children wouldn't be interested. The word philosopher sounded quite boring and people wouldn't read it. 
over in the States, which is, seems a shame because people did read it the rest of the world with the same title. But there you go, Sorcerer's Stone. Perhaps it does sound better. It's not quite as relevant, uh, but perhaps, you know, it does sound more like a, a, a wizardy term. And in fact, when they filmed the film, because the film was called The Sorcerer's Stone over there, every scene in which The Sorcerer's Stone was mentioned, they'd have to shoot two simultaneous takes, one mentioning The Philosopher's Stone and one mentioning The Sorcerer's Stone. So on top of an already hectic schedule, which we'll get to later, it does seem a bit of a ball ache to uh, have to go to those lengths. Um, Other little things that were changed apparently jk rowling wanted voldemort to have a silent t at the end but it wasn't until the audiobooks over in the u.s pronounced the t and then by the time the films were being produced everyone was pronouncing him as voldemort and not voldemort um so obviously the success in the u.s led to hollywood wanting a piece of the action but it was actually English film producer David Heyman who negotiated the rights to the first four books and took them to Warner Brothers for $1.6 million. And he'd go on to put together an impeccable crew for all eight films eventually. And so ambitious was the project uh, and so hard to create a series with the same child actors ageing with the films that the film was almost a computer-generated animation movie. I think Spielberg wanted to make it at some point as an animation. He was top of the list for a little while there to direct, but eventually he passed to take on Stanley Kubrick's project AI, Artificial Intelligence. But some claim that Rowling refused Spielberg because he wanted to make an animation animated movie set in an American high school as well, some others claim. Um, while some others suggest that Spielberg turned it down because the success and popularity of the book would have made it a slam dunk, in his words. No challenge, he said. It would have been just like transferring a billion dollars into your own bank account. But, you know, a few years later, he would make a mediocre version of Roldo's BFG, which practically flopped, proving that it would have been possible to have taken a best-selling children's book and uh, balls it up after all. So anyway, filmmaker Chris Columbus was eventually hired. He'd written a few films back in the 80s for Spielberg. He wrote Gremlins and Goonies, but he was selected out of a list of directors that included Ghostbusters' Ivan Reitman, Stand By Me's Rob Reiner, and Rowling's preferred choice was Terry Gilliam. But I can't under, I can't see a Terry Gilliam version of this being accessible for all the families you know there's something sort of almost gothic about his films isn't there um yeah i don't know there's not many terry gilliam's films that are sold to kids as well as adults is there but i think chris columbus you know he was a great choice at this point he'd had a couple of successful movies he'd done the home alone one and two um and also mrs doubtfire so you could see he had this playful quality in his work and by all accounts, he was on the same wavelength as Rowling with how he wanted the films to look. Um, he said he fell in love with the books after his daughters had introduced them. And in trying to land the job to put himself sort of ahead of the other directors, he went to Warner Brothers executives with a rewritten script of the film. And they was quite happy with the rewrite and the changes that he'd made. And he said, I've done that for free. You know, whereas usually in Hollywood, a rewrite would 
cost thousands, you know, 20,000 to 50,000, you know, huge amounts of money. And he's just done this for free because it was pas- he was passionate about it and really wanted the chance to make this film. So that obviously went a long way to get him the job. But the director may have been an American, but Rowling fought hard for the stipulation that the cast should be completely British unless absolutely necessary. Um, the the original film really is a who's who of British film and TV with classical actors such as Richard Harris, Alan Rickman and Maggie Smith heading the bill as Hogwarts' three most prominent tutors. Rickman and Harris were actually both ready to turn down the film but were convinced by young family members that they had to take the role. Uh, Harris says that his 11-year-old granddaughter said that she would never speak to him again if he turned down the role as Dumbledore. Uh, other actors who were considered for the role of Dumbledore were Patrick McGoohan, Christopher Lee, but Lee at the same time was doing the Lord of the Rings film, so it would have been a hard sell to sell him as the kindly wizard Dumbledore whilst she was also watching him as the white wizard, the evil white wizard Saruman in uh, Lord of the Rings. Because I think Dumbledore, he is a kindly old wizard. Isn't he? You know, there's a lot of mystery, but there's, he's playful. I don't think Christopher Lee really has that playful quality. Also, during the film's planning, uh, Alec Guinness was in talks to play the Hogwarts headmaster as well, but he passed away before they got too far into that. Apparently, whilst filming, Harris was always forgetting his lines, and so Daniel Radcliffe would ask the actor to help run through his own lines, sneakily giving the Dumbledore actor more practice himself. Um, then we got Alan Rickman as Slytherin headmaster Severus Snape. Uh, a great role for him, and a great actor in the role. Tim Roth was originally lined to play the potions master, but he opted out to be in Tim Burton's forgettable rehash of The Planet of the Apes instead. Rickman was the only actor in the film to have been given full disclosure about his character's backstory and the path he would be taking in future films and books, which lends the, the actor to a deeper understand the role and give a knowing performance. Because when you watch the films, there's a twinkle in his eye, even when he's being horrible to Harry Potter and he's picking on him. There's a flicker there where... There's something else he sees in Harry, you know? And I think having known his character, Alan Rickman knew to put that into Severus. And it gives him that edge that helps tie his story together. Because this is an important role in the films. If you've seen them, obviously, you'd understand. Uh, And Maggie Smith as McGonagall is a fantastic choice as well. Um, She added the Scottish accent herself. And she comes across more hard nose in the book, where she's a bit more playful and sort. Of, I don't know. There's something. It's just just a great performance. You don't. You feel that she's a loving character, but also you don't want to mess with her. Do you know what I mean? In the book, Maggie Smith is manages to give that, but that, there's something to do with the Scottish accent with that as well, because we worked for this elderly woman, and she was lovely. She had a Scottish accent, but when she sort of told us off for doing something, you know, she was playful, but at the same time, we're like, yes, ma'am, sorry, ma'am. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's a there's a, there's a lot going on with the Maggie Smith character that any other actress possibly wouldn't have uh, managed to bring to life. So that's the main three tutors. Then there's a, a myriad of well-known and beloved faces from the spectrum of British stage, film and TV, including Julie Walters, 
Zoe Wanamaker, John Hurt, Warwick Davis, Fiona Shaw, Robbie Coltrane, Richard Griffiths, John Cleese, all making up the additional characters in the background. Hagrid actually has quite a big role in this film, but his role gets less and less in the in future episodes. So he's one of the main cast in this. Um, also, there was Rick Mail had turned up as Peeves the Poltergeist. They filmed his scenes, but it made the cutting room floor, which was a shame. I think he would have been brilliant. Having heard the character of Peeves the Poltergeist, who emerges all through the books, it's almost as though J.K. Rowling had based that character completely on Rick Mayle. Like she said, she had Robbie Coltrane in mind whilst writing Hagrid. You know, he was her first choice. She says, actually, Coltrane, Rickman and Maggie Smith were her first choices for their roles. Um, but yeah, it's, it was a shame that Rick Mayo didn't make the cut. He actually didn't know he hadn't made the cut until he watched the film for the first time. So, a bit gutted. Robin Williams had shown an interest in playing Hagrid uh, after Columbus and him had worked together on Mrs. Doubtfire. But Columbus had to sort of turn him down because he said he couldn't break the stipulation that all the actors had to be British. Um, Uncle Vernon Dursley, uh, Richard Griffiths, out of that, you know, uh, Uncle Monty as well, another famous mon- uncle that he played in uh, With Nail and I. And I just think he's great. I loved the Dursleys. They're just so grotesque, so pompous and so oppressive but at the same time it is so fun to watch them and watch what happens with them you know um and i think griffiths was a great choice for the role doc martin actor ian mcneese was also considered um but yeah it's uh, it's richard griffiths and fiona shaw is his wife petunia and their son dudley harry mellon they're just comedy gold i love to hate this family that's another great thing about these harry potter books is that you know all the characters that you hate are just so well rounded that you they're just great to hate dudley dursley actor harry mellon is these days somewhat unrecognizable from his abhorrent character He's lost quite a lot of weight. In fact, he'd already lost a lot of that weight by the time he appeared in the last films. And actually, in the Deathly Hallows, he was in a fat suit to play Dudley. Um, I've seen him in other things. The first time I recognised him in anything, it was in the Coen Brothers Western anthology, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And uh, it's the, the story with the limbless performer, who Liam Neeson carries around and making money off. And I was watching him and I was like, although he's like gaunt, considerably thinner, I recognised his sunken eyes is what gave it away. And I was like, that can't be, that can't be. And then I Googled it. And of course, yeah, it was Harry Mellon from uh, Dudley Dursley from Harry Potter. Um, it also appeared in a couple of Netflix productions. I watched the... Uh, Devil All the Time, alongside Tom Holland and Robert Patterson, and as well as he had a significant role in Chess Hit, The Queen's Gambit. It was only a small role to start with, but Judy Walters was in competition for the role of Molly Weasley with Rosie O'Donnell, who, thank fuck, was an American, and therefore she didn't get it. I mean, who would have... Oh, God, Rosie O'Donnell, really? I mean, nobody plays the wholesome British mother better than Judy Walters in my opinion they couldn't have cast anyone better and then in the second having Mark Williams as Mr Weasley as well just a great great double act and yeah brilliant casting uh David Bradley 
as the horrible caretaker Filch, who you later see as a, an equally horrible character, or even more horrible character in uh, Game of Thrones. Um, David Bradley, absolutely brilliant casting as well. And as the caretaker Filch, he moved in to an isolated Irish cottage for a month before filming uh, with a cat. I don't know if it was the cat that would go on to play Mrs. Norris, but he wanted to prepare his character so that he felt a sort of a bitter isolation from the rest of them uh, because his character is bitter and isolated from the rest of Hogwarts. Uh, it's mentioned later in books that his character is hes known as a squib, which means he is born to magical parents but shows absolutely no magical talent himself. So that's where his bitterness comes from. Now, I was glad to see Zoe Wanamaker as Madam Hooch, the broomstick stroke Quidditch instructor. I always liked Zoe Wanamaker in, in things that I saw in uh, before. You know, she was a bit of a staple of British TV at the time. But little known fact that she was actually American born. and uh, But she was made an official UK resident in the year 2000. So just in time, I suppose, to fall into the stipulation but unfortunately she would be written out of the rest of the series even though her character madam hooch is quite prominent in the books because there's a lot sort of based around the quidditch and that in the books but she's written out of the rest of the series after she openly complained about actors in the series being underpaid and she wasn't invited back and it wasn't until this last recent viewing that I watched this that I recognised the Quirrell actor, Ian Hart. I never wouldn't say I'd known him from anything, but I was watching it this time and I was thinking, who is that? He looks familiar. And then all of a sudden it sort of came to me and I googled it. It was the actor Ian Hart has since played Father Bioka, the faithful monk at the side of Uhtred, son of Uhtred, in the excellent Vikings versus Saxon series, The Last Kingdom based on the Bernard Cornwell books. Uh, David Fluis had auditioned for the role of Quirrell, but thank God he didn't get it as he would later come back to play ally Remus Lupin in the later films. And uh, yeah, I think he gives a really great performance. Another character that you feel you know and trust in the later films. Warwick Davis would become the Charms Master and Ravenclaw head Phileas Flitwick, although he would go on to also voice the role of Gringotts teller Griphook, who was actually Griphook was played by the late Austin Powers actor Vern Troyer, mini-me, under heavy makeup. But obviously he was a US citizen and US accent was a no-no. So Davis was asked to come in and perform his voice as a voice actor and dubbed over the top. In the final film, Deathly Hallows, Davis would come back and play Grip Hook and be under the makeup himself. And it's actually a really great performance as Grip Hook. Watching it this time, I was like, you know, that is Warwick Davis is, is brilliant as Grip Hook. And um, yeah, there's something real sinister and untrustworthy, and uh, it's, it's something in his performance that just gets under your skin. It's great. Um, and this is one of those. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, I don't know. But apparently Columbus asked Roland to play the role of Lily in the mirror of Erisat scenes, but she was afraid that she would somehow ruin it. Um, so in the end, they got actress Geraldine Somerville to play Lily Potter. She had appeared in Cracker alongside uh, Robbie Coltrane. But I don't know much else about her, if I'm honest. However, that was all the grown-ups. 
but the casting of the child actors, which would ultimately make or break the productions. And I think in Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson and Rupert Grint, the burden of the film's success would lay heavily on their shoulders for the next 10 years. But wow, you know, what great performances they gave. Sort of from start to finish, watching it again, it just... You forget how how adorable they are as the young children. Rupert Grint, especially. I mean, he ages quicker than the rest of them. I mean, in the second film, his voice is broken already. But just sort of how baby-faced they all are, and Harry, Daniel Radcliffe especially. So Rupert Grint sent in a video to the open casting call when he saw it promoted on CBBC's Newsround and eventually got the role. Love Actually and Game of Thrones actor Thomas Brodie Sangster also auditioned for the role, but in the end, I think Rupert Grint and Ron Weasley were one and the same, and all the producers felt so. When they watched him, he just popped off the screen in the screen tests, uh, and especially against Emma Watson, they just sort of gelled together. Um, Watson was cast as Hermione Granger over thousands of other girls that fought for the part. And they said it was her confidence and her grown-up attitude to life and to the process as well that made her the perfect match for her character. Neither Grint or Watson had ever acted professionally before. Although in the documentary uh, series, Emma Watson does admit that she felt some strain from and you know the pressure of the series and the fame and the fortune and being in the public eye and the weight of her character in the fourth film. And I think she almost didn't return for the fifth film. I think I've got that right. But yeah, there was one point where she almost wasn't going to return and they would have had to cast someone else to finish the series, which would have been a shame, but ultimately it didn't happen and she did come back. And they had the roles of Hermione and Ron for a long time before they had the Harry Potter they said it was getting dangerously close to the time of filming they still didn't know who they wanted to play Harry Potter they auditioned over 5,000 boys for the Harry role himself they just couldn't settle on a single actor or they saw uh, over 5,000 boys I don't know if they auditioned them all I suppose some of them would have been just sent in their tapes would have got as far as that but um, Chris Columbus said he saw Daniel Radcliffe in a BBC adaptation of David Copperfield and then they offered him the role but his parents said it would be too much of an upheaval and they was a bit wary of the media intrusion which is fair enough but it wasn't until producer David Heyman went to a cinema and by chance ended up sitting right in front of Radcliffe and his family in a theatre and he said he couldn't take his eyes off him and ultimately he convinced Daniel's parents to take the role radcliffe claims that his dad felt that this chance encounter was a sign that this was meant to be that and probably the one million pound paycheck that they promised to the young actor helped as well but these three great actors in the main roles you know and it is a risk it had to have been a risk with you see a lot of child actors especially out in the states they get thrust into this fame and fortune and then it, as they evolve they either lose their sort of their appeal and they become a bit brattish there's all that to happen and uh, Chris Columbus I think it was Chris Columbus mentioned that when they was auditioning they was always looking at the parents as well they didn't want the sort of pushy parents to be involved because they noticed their children often have a downcline uh, you know decline from the roles if their parents are too pushy so they found these 
actors who could do the roles with parents who really understood their children and was going to be there to sort of protect them, I suppose. But yeah, they're all, all three actors are perfect screen incarnations of the characters from the books. They gave outstanding performance, but it is ultimately, it is their chemistry together that works wonders. And then there's the casting of the other children in the story, which is also impeccable. Uh, Tom Felton as Draco Malfoy. Just, yeah, a real little smarmy little git, you know. Um, I think he also auditioned for the role of Harry. He didn't get it. During the auditions, Chris Columbus would ask the children, oh, so, you know, what's your favourite part of the Harry Potter books? And Tom Felton had been asked the same question and he'd never read the books but he didn't admit that he listened to the boy in front of him who said oh the green gods i love the green gods bit so felton said oh yeah green gods definitely and he thinks that they might have seen through that but that might have been evidently the sort of what helped him to get the role that cheeky uh sly sort of foxy deviancy you know might have helped get him the role um matthew lewis as the hapless neville longbottom who you know they all all these characters age perfectly with their roles but you see matthew lewis now he's like he's quite the handsome good looking fellow you know in later days you can't believe it's the same boy because there's neville longbottom you know he's got that chubby goofy looking role about him but then his story his character arc as well through the stories and his role in the final film is just great he is one of those sort of background characters whose importance you don't realize until it it comes about uh it's just great um i suppose even real life twins james and oliver phelps as the weasleys i guess they're okay my kids seem to think they're two of the best characters in the films uh, although I I feel personally out of the whole cast when I've watched them, those two always sound like they're reading a script to me, you know, or reading a shopping list. They always grate on me a little bit, a bit of a uh, controversial statement, but there you go. That's just how I feel. Um, I mean, but what a massive change for these kids, wasn't it? Signing up to this, a, a real life changing experience you know it was going to take over their life for the next 10 years it could have stolen their line you know their childhood from them uh, chris columbus's own daughter eleanor also played pupil susan bones and although she was an american actress it was allowed by Rowling as it was a non-speaking part and her appearance in the film was trademark for the filmmaker um so, yeah, for all these kids, it must have been like one massive field trip. You hear them in the interviews just talking about how much fun they had. But it must have been quite difficult to film them all because uh, they're all excited. And children's attention span wanes, doesn't it, at that sort of age. So the director of photography, John Seal, he suggested shooting each take from multiple angles to capture the good takes all at once without having to do it again, because he said the stars were very quick to lose attention and all sort of crack up laughing. Most of the children's scenes was also filmed in chronological order as well, so they aged throughout the year. Um, except for the very first scene that they filmed was the very last scene of the movie, which was the train scene. And if you look closely, you see Harry's eyes are watering when he's saying goodbye to Hagrid, which is an emotional, oh God, he's really going to miss him. But the truth is that at this early stage, Harry was supposed to have green contact lenses and they was having trouble putting these contact lenses into his eyes. 
And uh, that's why his eyes were watering. So it was dropped on the very first day. Because in the book, Harry has green eyes. He has his mother's green eyes. But they said, you know, we're just going to have to just forget that. So that was stopped. And also Hermione has uh, bucked teeth in the book. Bushy hair and buck teeth. And they was quite convinced that they had to get these characters to stick as close as they could to the characters from the book. So if you look closely in this very first scene, Hermione has these sort of pretend bucked teeth in as well. But eventually they realised as well that they just, just forget that. They didn't need that. And also due to planning involved, the Quidditch match was one of the final scenes to be filmed. But apart from that, everything else was filmed in chronological order. Um, screenwriter Steve Cloves was brought on to, for the task of adapting the book he had been the writer director of the fabulous baker boys starring jeff and Bo bridges and he found it a really challenging adaptation but he worked closely with Rowling because he was conscious not of wanting to be known as the one who would ruin her baby she said that she was won over when he told her that hermione was his favorite character when she was sure that he was going to have said ron so they worked closely together and it is a faithful adaptation um which proves important as the books were still being written during production and even the slightest changes to the films could have fallen out of sync with roland's ultimate vision of the series you could just see game of thrones for an example of how that pans out you change too much um so there's minimal changes from this first book coves and columbus both kept in close contact with Rowling to make sure that they were getting everything right but there was obviously a few things that was missed out so obviously peeves the poltergeist was dropped as we've mentioned the first book's chapter was told from the viewpoint of vernon and petunia dursley is absent from the film harry and draco first meet in Madame Malkin's robe shop and the midnight jewel that they have is not in the film. Norbert is mentioned to have been taken away by Dumbledore in the film, whilst in the book, Harry and Hermione have to take him to Charlie Weasley's friends. That's uh, Norbert, the little dragon, Robbie Coltrane's. Uh, the, the detention in the Forbidden Forest, the reason for that was changed because in the book, it's Hermione and Harry caught by filch when they're getting rid of the, the little dragon and neville and malfoy are given detention because they're caught in the corridor um but in the film harry hermione and ron receive detention after malfoy catches them in hagrid's hut after hours uh, also differences from the book the dursley's trip to the zoo includes one of dudley's horrible friends joins them as well and harry wasn't invited but has to go as a last resort when they couldn't find someone else to look after him uh, in the movie, Harry's birthday is the end of August, so they could just go straight into Hogwarts. Uh, whereas in the books, it's at the end of July, so he's sort of like just a month before he has to go back to school. In the book, Dumbledore gives the cloak to Harry, claiming that it had been passed to him by his father for safekeeping, and he would have wanted Harry to keep it. Whereas in the film, it's never really described where it comes from. And also, Harry's elderly neighbour in Privet Drive, Mrs. Arabella Fig, doesn't feature in the film, but she is in the book. And she's another one of those characters that's set in place to sort of pop back up later in the series as quite an important character. Um, she comes back when the Death Eaters attack Harry in Order of the Phoenix. It's, you know, just another example of Rowling laying foundations as she was going with this book. 
So Arabella Fig is like one of the wizarding kind who is set amongst the muggles to keep an eye over Harry. And in the Mirror of Erisat scene, where Harry sees his parents in the book, he sees his whole, whole family, including grandparents. So that's just a few of the changes. So back on with the film. Now, at the request of the British film industry officials, the production was to take place in the UK, the majority of which take place at least in studios, with numerous location work taking place across the country. Um, And there was a change in child labour laws to allow this production to take place more freely, uh, which added up to like a few hours a week and flexible on-set school timetables as we mentioned filming filming with children in this capacity and for such an ambitious project meant a really lengthy schedule producer david Heyman stated in the warner brothers making of documentary that you have the children for nine hours a day three of which is put aside for education one hour for lunch with 15 minute breaks every hour which only leaves like you know three or four hours to film with the children each day so filming took place for six months started in late September 2000 and finished 23rd of March 2001. So the average film production schedule, to give you some idea, is like three months. So it doubled the amount of time that these films took place. Um, now, the effects were were great, but this, out of all the films, this is the one with the weakest effects. Some of the CGI, it's a bit sort of faulty. When you see, like, the CGI human characters, it almost looks very cartoony. But... Having said that, the, the the set designs and a lot of the puppetry and the makeup and that was absolutely brilliant. Really haunting, sort of mystical creatures. Jim Henson's Creature Shop were used to create some of the mythical creatures. ILM helped to create Voldemort, the head of Voldemort, onto the back of Quivel, which, you know, we notice in this version of the story has a nose. Whereas in the films later on, Voldemort doesn't have a nose. He has that snake's nose. And he's, even in the books, actually, he has that snake's nose. Even in this chapter of the book. And Sony's image works created the Quidditch match. Although they were great, they were possibly the weakest effects in the film, I would say, at that point. Columbus was very disappointed with the effects on the first film. And although they received a BAFTA for best visual effects, they were sort of snubbed by the Oscars. But then they was out at about the same time as Lord of the Rings. And I think Lord of the Rings blew the effects out of the water for everything that had gone before. And also sort of set a tide mark for the productions of other films. So, you know, even by Chamber of Secrets, the film's effects would become improved. And I think a lot of that had to do with sort of influence of Lord of the Rings. Stuart Craig designed the sets opting for many real locations to film various parts of Hogwarts, but creating some incredible sets too, such as Diagon Alley, which they did scout in London, but he said they're so difficult to find a little cobbled street without, like, something modern, which they could also close. He said it just makes sense to build their own Diagon Alley. He also says that creating Hogwarts with all these different parts matching up to on-set locations, that the overall silhouette of Hogwarts seemed very mismatched. And he says it's something that in later films he returns and they're building more sets and using more CGI and he can subtly steer the silhouette into more of a cohesive structure that was more fitting, making a better facade of the, the school. Um, I know that when we went to the uh, 
the film set, the Harry Potter world, seeing the miniature Hogwarts, and you say miniature, you know, it is absolutely fucking huge. It's ginormous, and you walk around it, but it's still miniature, obviously, because you can't go in it. But it's one of the most impressive things you'll ever cast your eye on. If you like model villages and things like that, you will love this. The detail is just so amazing to see it all there. Uh, Stuart Craig was the Academy Award-winning production designer of films such as Candy, The English Patient, and Dangerous Liaisons. Um, the Great Hall scene he budgeted it took a massive chunk of the budget to create the Great Hall over real stone flooring. Which at first they were sort of like, mm, do we need it? But once they filmed like the first film on there, having hundreds of kids running over it and cast and crew, the stone floors would stand the test of time. And uh, also little touches like the, the, the candles floating overhead. They used to be suspended on wires in the early film, but then later on they would go on to become sort of CGI. When they're having the feast, the children, they had real food on the tables but they would have to be changed and swapped regularly because as under the lights the filming lights the food would soon go off and start to create such a bit of a pong and i know i can testify to this because i worked as an extra on um sky tv's delicious with amelia fox and dawn french and there was a party scene uh, a pool party and they had real food up the side of this uh, party. And we was only there for three days. Bear in mind, we was only there for three days. And on the first day, this food looked so delicious. By the second day, it was stinking. By the third day, it absolutely smelt disgusting, like bad feet. Um, so, yeah, in future, the scenes of the feasts of the Harry Potter films, they would make replica food made of resin, which would just you know, didn't have to be swapped out and wouldn't go mouldy, which makes sense. Uh, John Williams was called in to do the score. I think they had asked Howard Shaw, um, but, you know, it would be John Williams that turned up. Uh, his score, you know, it's now synonymous with the franchise. He didn't go on to do all the films, but his theme has always remained. But if you watch Hook, the Spielberg, Peter Pan sequel, Hook, there's a part in that score where you can hear it's like, that sounds like the Harry Potter theme, you know? So it's it's an idea he had and he'd played with, but he brings to life for the Harry Potter films here. So on its release, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was both a critical and commercial success. Director Chris Columbus laughs that this was the first of his films to have received a glowing review from US critic Roger Ebert. In the UK, it made £6.7 million in its preview weekend, which stole a record held by Toy Story 2. And it went on to break records for highest opening weekend ever, including and excluding previews. In the US, its single day sales knocked Star Wars Episode 1 off of its perch. And... It became the second highest grossing film worldwide after Titanic. As I said, I love this story. I love the characters. And the fact that over the subsequent film, we will see these characters grow and develop in front of us in real time. And it's, it is a challenging feat to have accomplished, but it's perfectly handled. And, you know, the series matures with the children, with its audience. 
which becomes absolutely brilliant. And, you know, watching this film again, very often with sort of adventure films and action films, I loved watching the development of these characters and the story and the world and everything sort of falling into place. And then by the end, when it's the, the final act and the main characters are going on this mission, it's usually where I get bored in films. But this film's ending, you know, watching it again now, must be the fifth or sixth time I've watched this series. But I, I just absolutely love the ending of this film. The wizard's chess game, you know, the disclosure of Quirrell and Voldemort. It just feels like something fantastic. It feels like something dark emerging. It's sort of like the rise of the Emperor in the Star Wars prequels. But there's none of the trashy, soppy romance. There's, there's nothing lacking like the Star Wars prequels. This series is pretty much impeccable. And as a first film, The Philosopher's Stone is a great way to kick off this franchise so yeah i have enjoyed re-watching them uh, and i will come back and discuss the rest of the harry potter films very soon so yeah please stay tuned for that and yeah i will put a link below to the harry potter audio books on audible uh, which i'm listening to on there stephen fry reading them so if anyone's interested have a look in the uh, write-up for this episode because it's great and I think everyone should listen to Stephen Fry read these books to hear you know it's like a deeper dive into the Potter world and if you don't want to read the books yourself listening to him is great it's brilliant it's a great way to explore the characters in more depth and the magical wizarding world of Harry Potter you'll find out a lot more especially in the later books you will find out a lot more about the characters and about things that happen and things make more sense and yeah it's just great anyway i am just rambling on so thanks ever so much for listening if you have enjoyed this like i said please go on and give us a rating wherever you can and hopefully that will help us get more listeners so thanks ever so much for listening and i will see you all again soon cheers